Um, Sean, are you keeping those pipes wet? You're sounding a little dry. I'm sounding dry? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you heard me open this bubbly. Yeah, no, you gotta, I'm you gotta sipping consume on it. some. You haven't been keeping hydrated today, though, have you? Um, I can you know, hear it in your voice from Now here. that I think about it, I probably could have done a much better job of hydrating today. I could yeah. have done a better job of a lot of things, but... it's uh, It's been tough since you moved to Philly and don't have Jeremy around to monitor your... Your hydration. hydration. Yeah, oh, no, he used, to, he used to stop over four or five times a day and just fill a glass of water for me and then leave without saying anything. <laughs> I don't have that service anymore. You know I, need, an I need that friend role replaced. You know there's an app for that. Mmm... <laughs> <laughs> An app can't replace friendship. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> I need a personal LA. touch. Classic LA replacing me with an app. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, a changed man in both mind and heart. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles. I identify as male, and I enjoy a good harmonic modulation. So you could call me Jazzman. <laughs> Jazzman. Love it. I am Peter Cook, director of an upcoming film starring Carol Kane with music by Carol King. It's called Taxi Street. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, you did it. Boy. Oh boy. And I am your guest, Taylor Rowley. I am hopefully the comeback kid, but the best is yet to come. Ooh. Because we are all in this together. That's wow. right. Yes. So true. Welcome back, comeback kid Taylor. Hi, thanks for having me back. The all-time, yeah, our all-time most guesting guest. And, you know, we, we, we just, we couldn't do this one without you. Oh, um, thank you. For those, I can't imagine many of our listeners haven't heard you yet, but why don't you just give a little breakdown of who you are and what you do, Taylor. Okay. Uh, my name is Taylor Rowley. I am an LA-based music supervisor and radio host. I have a radio show on NTS Radio called The Windmills of Your Mind, which is on every fourth Thursday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. And it's PM. good. Thank you. We can confirm here, I think maybe all of us can yeah. confirm that it is good. I can confirm as well. Absolutely. I'm glad you think so. Three out of that three really, full-time hosts. That host. would really suck if... <laughs> recommend. I would predict it would be Jeremy that was like, yeah, it wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's just my on-mic persona for this show, okay? Okay. <laughs> He's willing to be brutally right. honest about, like, long-dead musicians <laughs> that we talk about, but I, I don't see him just being that much of a dick to a guest. <laughs> Yeah, maybe after your sixth or seventh yeah. appearance. You'll, you'll yeah, then he's like, all right, you've been on six times. Your radio show needs a little <laughs> bit of work. I've got some pointers. 
Yeah, if you come back with a 10cc album, then then we might have words. <laughs> oh no. We already did one, so you're safe or I'm safe. Um Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about this artist with you Taylor, Carol King. Yes, not Kane, although I love her too. Not Yeah. Yeah, what would the 70s have been without either of them? I know. I had the best Empty. curly hair in the game. <laughs> True. So we're going to cover Wrap Around Joy, which is Carol King's sixth album. It hit number one on the Billboard album charts in late 1974. And I think we should just get started with the song that it's definitely the best known song from the album. Mm-hmm. It won a that Grammy. Would be, yeah, it's, a, it's big time. So that's Jazz Man, side A, track three. Lift me, won't you lift me above the old routine? Make it nice, lay it clean. Jazz got this album and heard that song i had this pinging nostalgia and i couldn't figure out why because this song was before my time and then i realized that was because it was featured in the season six episode of the simpsons round springfield where lisa simpson and bleeding gums murphy performed it <laughs> did you oh, ac- wow did you actually remember that or did you have to look it up 
I had to look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I did. I, but it, I was like, why does this remind me of being a, a teenager, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the reason. And, and, and of course, it was Yardley Smith's voice <laughs> that I'm right. thinking of singing it. I had a tingling of something that wasn't really nostalgia. It's kind of the opposite. And you guys laughed when I kind of brought it up before we started the show here. But there's like a little steely Danness going on in parts of this album and including that song a little bit. <laughs> and I, I was made to believe there might be a reason for that. Yeah. So the music for that was written by Carol King, but the lyrics were written by a guy named David Palmer, who was an early vocalist for Steely Dan. He was the lead vocal on Dirty Work and co-lead vocal with Donald Fagan on Reeling in the Years. And uh, Dean Parks, the, uh, the guitarist who worked with Steely Dan, is also on this record. So yeah, there's some Dan connections. Yeah. Wouldn't you know it? So Carol King had known Dave Palmer for quite a while when she was she and Jerry Goffin had written some songs for a band, some demos for a band that he was in called The Middle Class. And then when they she started a group called The City sometime after that, um he wrote a couple songs with her on that record, on the record that they released, their only record, which is quite good, called Now That Everything's Been Said, I believe. So they had been they had worked together for a while. Yeah, I guess she called him up when she wanted to make this record and they wrote the whole re- uh the whole album together. Okay, so he wasn't necessarily always her go-to lyricist on her other albums. Definitely not. Okay. But she did have a tendency to kind of keep things in the family where she just worked with the same people kind of over and over and they all happened to be people who she had become friends with. Mhm. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. That one was written about Curtis Amy, a saxophonist, composer, and musical director for the Ray Charles Band. He was the jazz man. It hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100. You know what song it was behind that it couldn't get ahead of? Why don't you ain't seen nothing yet by Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> oh, my. Baby. I'm going to drop this right here. Lo- little secret. Sean Hartman is a, B- a BTO fan. Yeah, I'm like a, you know, like a mild BTO fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not a hater. No, I'm definitely not a hater. I mean, it's one of the few, like, straight-ahead rock bands from that time period that I get down with. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they <laughs> they wrote some damn good pop songs, too. They weren't just, you know, your generic rock band. But anyways. Yeah. <laughs> The sax solo on that is by Tom Scott, and he's another one of those guys that worked with everyone. He was a member of the Blues Brothers as Triple Scale, and he also played on a couple Steely Dan albums. <laughs> yes, oh he my did. Gosh. <laughs> and you can find almost all of his records in the dollar bin forever. Tom Scott's? Forever and ever. Yeah. I actually like Honeysuckle Breeze quite a bit. He, that is the only one that you won't find yeah. <laughs> in a dollar bin. <laughs> yeah, his his cover of Jefferson Airplanes Today is really good. Ooh. I mean, even his like 70s stuff, it's often very smooth and cheesy, but there's some gems in there for sure. He was an amazing player. Just, you know, he was very good at making smooth jazz for white people in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, here's some music for white people right here. 
And that leads me to my next question. You know, like this is an album that a lot of people had in, not this album in particular, but Carol King is an artist who I think a lot of parents of people from our generation, this was an album that were, or this was an artist who would be in their, our parents' collections. I know my mother had tapestry Mm -hmm. and she, she may have had this album too. I'm sure she probably had several Carol King albums. Yeah, I think I think there was a period in American history where copies of Tapestry and Frampton Comes Alive were just being delivered to every household in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah, they were just mandatory, obligatory. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they're widespread. That's uh, my only Carol King exposure before listening to this album is that I had a surround sound version that was made of Tapestry and I it was fine. It didn't really pull me in. And then I saw Carol King records everywhere for years and years. You find them every bin. So it's, it's good to actually focus in and listen. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, this is one that I got cheap somewhere, probably a thrift store years and years ago and just got, cause I, you know, I knew that I liked songs she had written and, but I, it took me years to get around to listening to it. And uh, once I did, I, I came to love it. Was that a scoff I heard, Taylor, when I said I didn't really get uh, Yeah, it was, actually. <laughs> now you're just being, you're being just, you're just being a contrarian. Contrarian? Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but he's a lovable contrarian, at least. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, Taylor, what is your background with Carol King? Okay, so of course, you know, as if anybody's listened to the up- other episodes that I've been on, that's something, it's always something I has to do with my childhood and watching it on TV or a movie. So, or maybe I just have a really good memory, which is maybe it's probably both. But I, uh, I guess my first interaction with anything by her was <laughs> there was this special she did, an animated special in the 70s that I saw in elementary school later in the 80s called Really Rosie. And she composed and performed all the music on it. And it was illustrated or animated by Maurice Sendak, who illustrated, Mm. wrote and illustrated uh, Where the Wild Things Are, among many other things. And I loved it. There was this song called Chicken Soup with Rice that she wrote that I was obsessed with when I was like five years old. And then, of course, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you can ask my parents how how much I sing that around the house. And then, uh, I mean, obviously, I knew so much of her work as a songwriter for other artists, but I probably did not hear Tapestry in its entirety until high school, and I just loved it. I know I, I love, love, love that record. And yeah, and but weirdly, I don't, I have not listened to too much else besides her after that. I did not know this album before we, we got on here, but I really like it. Yeah. It's grown on me. That's why I... Th- I thought it would be important to do an album of hers that's not Tapestry, because I feel like that's the ubiquitous record. Mm-hmm. In, uh, but it's, you know, I'm sure that's not a dollar record anymore. Like, like I'm sure Tapestry, probably a copy of that, even though they're massively widespread, I'm sure that Sean can probably confirm they're probably selling for 10 or 15 bucks now. Uh, it depends on the place. Like the, it, That's a record that's been steadily going up in value at a slow pace over the... 10 to 15 years I've been selling and collecting records, but it's, it's definitely not as valuable as other records that were, you know, just as much produced, Mm -hmm. like, you know, like thriller is still worth more than that. And they had made more of them, but tapestry has always been a record that we couldn't keep in stock at the record store. 
Yeah. It just always flew out. That one will move and, and the other one sits. So I thought Wraparound Joy, which is another one that you see fairly often, that, that one tends to sit more. So that's why I went with this one. Excellent choice. I think it's a good call too, because it was the first one that was, I think it was the most well-received one that came after Tapestry. She, it's actually the, I think, fourth album, third or fourth. Do you guys know? Album that she released after Tapestry, but the other three were... I mean, she's Carol King, and she's a brilliant songwriter, so I would not say that any of them were ill-received, but this one was the best-received. So I think it's a good choice. Non-Tapestry. Yeah, exactly, besides Tapestry. It's the third record after Tapestry. It was uh, Rhymes and Reasons, Fantasy, and then Wraparound Joy. Mm -hmm. There was music as well. That's her first record. Oh, oh, that was no. Okay. I'm that sorry. Was no, you're right. Writer was her first one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tapestry and okay. Music both came out in '71, okay. which I wasn't sure which one came out first in right. that year. Mm-hmm. Then Rhymes and Reasons, then Fantasy, then Wraparound Joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I must admit that I'm fairly inexperienced with most of Carol King's catalog. My impression from listening to this record several times the last few days was that it's got a little bit more of a soul influence than other stuff I'm I've heard of hers. Is that accurate? Well, well, I mean, maybe, wait, wait, can I ask a question when you say that it's the first thing sure. that you're familiar by? Do you mean as a singer songwriter or just a songwriter? As as like her self-released albums, like as a singer songwriter. Yeah, as a singer songwriter. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's definitely has, you know, a lot of soul in it. I would say Tapestry does too. I mean, I think that comes from her. She got her start as sort of writing these R&B tinged pop songs with mm-hmm. Jerry Goffin. So I think that's like kind of her first love. I know that she was really, really into doo-wop and R&B. Those were her primary influences before she became a successful songwriter. Okay. So... Yeah, I definitely really like the the doo-wop and R&B mm-hmm. influence on this record. That was my favorite elements of it, for sure. There's definitely a strong soul influence on the next track that I'd like to feature, which is We Are All In This Together, side A, track six. Let's listen to that now.
That song reminds me a lot, just listening to it now, of uh, her song Way Over Yonder from Tapestry. Similar vibe? Mm-hmm. For sure. This one was my favorite song on the album. I feel like she was playing with fire with a title like that and like riding a line of potential political cheesiness. Mm-hmm. But she, I would say, slam dunked it, though, and somehow avoided it. Avoided the cheesiness. Avoided the cheesiness and like landed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very well arranged. Yeah, that's definitely a standout track on the album for me. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a good uh, gospel style background vocals. And that track has none other than the Eddie Kendricks singers on it. Mm. Yes. Vanetta Fields, Marty McCall, Geraldine Jones, and Clyde King. And I I don't know that Eddie Kendricks is also involved. <laughs> I wasn't clear on that. Did you find any information whether or not Eddie would have been in there too, Sean? I did not. I, I'm guessing it's just his backup vocalist. But yeah, that's that's I'm under the impression that that's the case. Mm-hmm. The string section, the the strings are arranged by David Campbell, who we've talked about on the show before. Does anyone remember? who he is we uh, talked oh, about the, yes the he's the father of beck yes oh wow i didn't <laughs> oh. know like multiple grammy award-winning arranger yep was that on jimmy spheris we talked about yeah, the that? very yes. first episode <laughs> wow yes. you just called back 97 episodes yeah, that's before this <laughs> a scientologist right so indeed there's a scientologist connection on this record all right cool <laughs> <laughs> yep I used to try to find the Tupac connection, and now I've got to get back to the original episode, The Roots, and find the Scientology <laughs> connections. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we all really dig this one, because I fail to see anything wrong with that track. It's a real strong outing from Carol King. I mean, for me, the record is pretty consistent throughout, but uh, that one definitely feels like a, a standout moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, that's kind of what she got criticism for with her records that came after Tapestry is that they started noticing that, you know, her songwriting craft is like unrivaled, but they started saying that she was more of a, more of a songwriter and less, she wasn't bringing out the artistry. And this was the first one um, after Tapestry where they, the critics started saying that she was, you know, returning to sort of, returning to form as an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, she had a long history as a songwriter before her her solo artist days, and I'd like to, uh, at this point, if we're ready, dive into that bio. Dive. So she was born Carol Klein, mm-hmm. February 9th, 1942, in Manhattan, although she was raised in Brooklyn. She started piano at the age of four. And it was discovered early on that she had absolute pitch that she, meaning she could name a note just by hearing it, which is pretty incredible. I, I, I can't name a note when I'm playing it. So she also <laughs> learned how to write string arrangements by checking out a book from the library called "How to Write for Strings" and teaching herself how to write for strings from that. Man, the without playing old fa- yeah, good old fashioned classic way of doing. When she was things. like seventeen years old. 
Very nice. I don't know if I'm more impressed with her or the author of the book. That <laughs> yeah. She could just learn that without, you know, having a string section to to work with. Yeah. yeah hopefully she's gone back and given that a five-star review on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so her first band in high school was a vocal quartet called the Cosines. And it was around this time that she changed her name to Carol King. She made demos with a friend of hers whose name was Paul Simon. <laughs> yeah. Little guy from the neighborhood. Yeah. What, what's his name now? <laughs> well, actually, at the time, they were go- uh, that was when he was going as Jerry, right? Or Tom, you know, when, the, oh. when um, he and Art Garfunkel were Tom and Jerry. <laughs> I forgot about yeah. that. <laughs> they were all changing their names. Yeah. Got finding their way. You could call him Al, too, if you Right. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Very good. She released her first single, The Right Girl, on ABC Paramount in 1958 when she was only 16. And while attending Queens College, she got to know a fellow named Jerry Goffin, with whom she formed a songwriting partnership. Of course, they eventually would marry as well. They had a... She was only 17 when they got married because they... She got pregnant from him. Um, so oh, they had wow. to get married. Yes, yeah, sorry to interject. But yeah, that's, that was why they got married. <laughs> uh, it was yeah, the time. So of course, the, the, of, of course that, we, that marriage turned out great, right? Right. Well, they did have a very long, fruitful relationship. So no, it's, it's true. She had actually, before Goffin, she had dated Neil Sedaka, uh, who, of course, is well known for songs like Breaking Up is Hard to Do and Laughter in the Rain. And it was his first hit as a solo artist was in 1959. The song was Oh Carol and written for her. And eventually uh, Jerry Goffin wrote a response song for Carol to record called O'Neill, although it was not a hit. It very much followed the structure of, of the Neil Sedaka song too. <laughs> Was that possibly the first diss track? Is O'Neill a diss song? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's... it's a, I listened to it. What? That was a common thing back then to have sort of these response novelty tracks to like popular songs of the day. Okay. So I think that was kind of, that was kind of in that vein. But I haven't heard it. So yeah, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, they started writing under publishers Don Kirshner and Al Nevins in the famed pop songwriting house, The Brill Building, we've talked about once or twice on the podcast. The first success for King and Goffin was the Shirelles' Will You Love Me Tomorrow in 1960. That became a number one hit. I believe she later recorded that on Tapestry, right? She did. Taylor? She did, and it was a number one hit by the time she was 18. Wow. Yeah. Entering adulthood at the top of the charts. You know, of course, the, yeah, the songs that King and Goffin wrote for other artists is kind of an endless list, but just a few highlights would be Bobby V, Take Good Care of My Baby in 1961, Little Eva, The Locomotion in 1962. I guess Little Eva was their babysitter. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, little sister of, I think her name was Jeannie. No, it was, it's a long story. I read a whole thing about it today. Anyway, Ava got introduced to her, to Carol King, through a lady who was a singer in the band The Cookies, who, who Carol and Jerry Goffin also wrote for. 
Chains was a big hit yes. for them. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Beatles recorded a version of it right. uh, in 63. Uh, and then didn't one or two of the members of the Cookies go on to be a part of uh, Ray Charles's backing vocalists? The Ray Letts? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Dang. Yeah, other few other songs. We have Monkeys Pleasant Valley Sunday is a Goffin King number. The Drifters Up on the Roof. Herman's Hermits I'm into something good. Dusty Springfield's Going Back. Aretha Franklin You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. And the last one I'll mention is The Birds Wasn't Born to Follow. So pretty wide range of material there. I also really love another one she did for the monkeys called Porpoise Song. If you've ever seen the movie Head that stars the monkeys in it, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's a song that Mickey Mickey Dolan's like falls into the ocean and that song's playing. It's so, it's so great. (laughs) Yeah. I I love Head. I haven't seen it in years. I'm, I'm due to revisit it. Did you guys see Mickey Dolan's recorded an entire Carole King tribute album? called king for a day i didn't but i'm intrigued yeah 2010 he put out an all carol king tribute album (laughs) i can't tell if you're joking but (laughs) no it's real oh that's well that's really cool i love a fact i didn't get a chance to listen to it but he's my favorite i'm kind of surprised that we haven't covered any monkeys or monkeys related stuff on the podcast yet i'm a big michael nesmith fan myself yeah i love that country yeah. stuff that he did i love them too but i don't know if their records are a dollar are they i don't know about the monkeys anymore but there was a time where they probably were maybe for like april fools or like halloween <laughs> we could do like a head like watch along where we comment on it and the listeners can like watch it and listen to our commentary <laughs> we could set that up on twitch time. i think that's what all the kids are doing these yeah. days yeah can't wait for the part where he blows up that Coke machine. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Goffin and King, yeah, their relationship ended in the late 1960s. They did have two children, Louise and Sherry, and they are actually on backing vocals on the opening song on this album, Nightingale. They are 14 and 12, respectively. And that is the next song that I would like to feature. Side A. Track one.
stop me if you think this metaphor is terrible or dumb, but while listening to this album, I was, uh, what's the word for it? In my mind, I was like seeing images of her voice. And to me, her voice feels like drawing with like a big fat Sharpie or like a really thick paintbrush. It's like very thick and it like moves slow and fills a lot of space in all the mixes. It's like very not like a pen on paper. Very rich. I appreciate your sin- your spe- very specific type of synesthesia. There's um, the word. Yeah. Uh, I'd agree with that. I also I love, enjoy how breezy it is. Yeah, it's all yeah. like very curvy, mm-hmm. like non-sharp lines. Yeah. And that's where like it works I thought in the previous song we listened to, that's why it was my favorite, was that her voice I felt like blended with that arrangement best. And on the songs that didn't work as well for me in this album, or when it felt like rhythmically kind of sharper, and then her voice felt very contrasting to me over those songs. And you're saying this is a case where that latter thing happened? No, this one was kind of in the middle Okay, between the two. It worked, I thought. But as as you kind of said before, we were recording, it almost is like a Carol King. It almost sounds like a parody where it like checks off every single Carol King box in one song. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, it, that being the first the first song, and and you hear it, you're like, yeah, this is definitely a Carol King song, an album. It's definitely no surprises on on that one. But I think it's like a lot of her stuff, very expertly crafted. Absolutely. And once again, I think one of the, my favorite parts of that song is the backing vocals, which, as we said, is her two daughters backing her up. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I thought the the mixture of those voices really elevated the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a, a moderate, it was a pretty big hit. It was number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 in March of 1975. So not jazz man level, but, I, and I'd say jazz man's better remembered in her overall catalog uh, than this song but let's get back to her story because we aren't done yet it's a lot of it (laughs) her second husband was a guy named charles larkey and he is the bassist on this album so they moved to the west coast in the late 1960s and started a short-lived trio with danny korchmar who's actually the guitarist on this album, which I think Taylor mentioned earlier, The City mm-hmm. is was the name of the trio. And I guess Carole King had stage fright, so the group didn't tour, and sales on their one album that was released in 1968 were slow. Oh, yeah. She really didn't want... For her, it was all about the songs. Like She did not want to be... I wouldn't say that she didn't want to be famous, but she didn't want to be the face of anything. So, yeah, she refused to tour. And yes, yeah, so it didn't. It did not do well. Even though the songs on it are great, and she does a, they do cover, or I mean, I guess it's her own song, but uh, they did their version of "Wasn't Born to Follow," and I think it's just as great as the bird, uh, the birds. Yeah, I really liked what I did check out of the city. Mm-hmm. I thought it was crazy that she was a part of both the Brill Building scene 
then moves away from that to like the Laurel Canyon scene yeah, <laughs> and is a part of that, was really in- that whole world too. That was really intentional because so she had had success with the Brill Building and she's sort of moving through eras, you know, so her career started, of course, she was very young in age. She was only 17, you know, so by the 25, she was almost aged out because the styles of music were changing so much that the kind of early 60s Brill Building a girl group sound was going away and was giving way to people like Bob Dylan and the Beatles and West Coast Sound. And so when her relationship with Jerry Goffin started to suffer, she was like, you know what, I'm gonna just pick up, take my kids and move to LA and start a new singing career or songwriting career there. Yeah, and when she got there, she eventually met an up and coming singer songwriter by the name of James Taylor. Mm -hmm. And he encouraged her to pursue a solo career despite, you know, having struggled to establish herself as a performer. So her first album was Writer, released in 1970 on Lou Adler's Ode label, and it actually featured James Taylor on guitar and backing vocals. Mm -hmm. Now, that one didn't receive much attention until the success of her sophomore album, Tapestry. And, you know, that's (laughs) launched her into the stratosphere that's the... 81st best-selling album of all time. Oh, there's sales are estimated at over 14 million copies worldwide, and it was in the Billboard Top 200 for six years consecutively, which was the longest by a female artist until Adele's 21 surpassed it in 2017. Wow. Yeah, and um, she, I think it was during, she went on tour with James Taylor somewhere in between writer and tapestry on his own tour and she would come out and perform and that's how she became comfortable with performing in front of an audience so by the time tapestry came around she was touring yeah which i'm sure helped that helped propel the the sales of that one i'm Mm -hmm. sure that she was out there doing it for herself now Mm -hmm. yeah she in 73 she performed a free concert in central park with a hundred thousand people in attendance So she clearly uh, got over the stage fright as well, or at least learned how to deal with it. And yes, so she had, we mentioned before, she had released three albums between Tapestry and this one. And and this album was a big hit. For its follow-up, Thoroughbred, she actually reunited with Goffin to write the songs. And that was successful, but was followed by albums that were less and less commercially successful. And kind of at the same time, her marriage with Larky fell apart. And then her third husband, a guy named Rick Evers, died of a drug overdose in 1978. And he, she revealed a few years ago in her, her memoir that he, Rick Evers, had been physically abusive. Yes. So... So... He also was sort of involved. She had like this tendency to involve these men that she was romantically involved with in the recordings of her records. And sometimes, you know, they were with Jerry Goffin. He was a, a brilliant lyricist. And with Chris Larkey, he was um, Charles Larkey, excuse me. You know, he was a talented bassist. But with this guy, he was just sort of a he was a, essentially a grifter and sort of just weaseled his way into like recording on, on her records with her. And he was... <laughs> So they kind of went downhill for a while because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that she really began to struggle in the mid to late yeah. 70s. And he was abusive. He knocked her teeth out a couple times, I've read. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 
So in the late 1970s, she moved to a tiny mountain village in Idaho and became very active in the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. I know that since 1990, she's been working with groups towards passage of the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. She actually testified on Capitol Hill three times on behalf of this act between 1994 and 2009. So that seems to be one way that she kind of coped with the aftermath of, mm -hmm. of everything that happened to her was kind of refocusing her direction. I think her most recent album, she did record more music and the most recent album of new material was in 2001. So that's 20 years ago now. That was Love Makes the World. She also uh, re-recorded the song Where You Lead as the theme song for the Gilmore Girls. In which, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a re-recorded version of that. And she also appears in it, too. She's the owner of a music store. Nice. Mm -hmm. I haven't... I've seen bits and pieces of Gilmore Girls. My wife is a big fan. I'm, I, I'm due to watch it. Uh, I don't Peter, know. admit it. You've seen every episode. <laughs> you love it. I'm at a, was it, there's a podcast called Gilmore Guys. Yeah. Where they, <laughs> <laughs> they go through each episode, I believe. Mm -hmm. Which one did you guess on, Peter? Tell yeah. us. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Under an alias. <laughs> that show is so reference heavy in the, in the dialogue. It like puts Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith to shame with like how many pop culture yeah, references there are. That's why it. they make fun of it on The Family Guy. You know when they watch TV and they'll be like, I'm dating myself here, but they'll be like, watching Dharma and Greg and then they'll be like it'll just be Dharma on it like dancing on a chair and Greg goes Dharma you're so crazy like you know like but they they make fun of uh how the Gilmore Girls the fast talking pop culture referencing way on that yeah. so yeah yeah it's a very unique approach yeah so yeah Carol King was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist this year only and this year? She got, yeah, as I understand it, it was just The this Rock and year. Roll Hall of Fame sucks. It's so <laughs> irrelevant. Like, it's just so... It, it really it's like, is, though. Yeah, it's like, really? Like, One of the okay. most important songwriters yeah. and musicians of the last 50 <laughs> years. And <laughs> What a joke. <laughs> On that note. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, but good for her. Yeah. Sean, did you find some uh, artists uh, worthy of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame candidacy to put together on a Spotify <laughs> playlist? Or did you just do did you just do all songs written by Goffin King? Because you could. <laughs> What'd you do? I, I definitely could. I I have not completely finished the playlist, so I do plan to add a bunch of stuff that Carol King wrote. Some of the artists I put on there that I think have some similar styles to this record i put a another laura nero perfect. and labelle track on there from the album gonna take a miracle i think that's a perfect dollar bin pairing with this one and laura nero They're, was uh hugely influenced by carol king that makes sense yeah. for sure uh, i put some late period dusty springfield on there and one of my favorite records of the last year that I picked up and been playing a lot, The Wedding Album by Leon and Mary Russell, I think is a... Oh, I love Mary Russell. Yeah, definitely. There's an Ann Peebles track on there from the album I Can't Stand the Rain. We did that song on one of our Patreon episodes. 
Patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. <laughs> That's the one. That was your quickest plug for Patreon ever, Peter. What a God. pro. For it. Yeah. Uh, I put a Joan Armatrading song on there, another artist we've talked about on the podcast. There's a Nils Lofgren track on there, a song by the group Smith from the album A Group Called mm. Smith. I was just um, listening to them the other day. That's great stuff. Yeah, it really is. There's a Carly Simon track on here, Maria Muldaur, Dion Warwick, and Dory Previn. Oh, nice. Callback. Mm. Callback to me. Exactly. Yeah. I only started listening to Dory Previn because of Taylor's recommendations, so Aww. it makes sense to put it on there. Can I add yep. a couple? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I was thinking about this playlist, and I thought you could add the music of a couple other couple songwriters, like Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Berry, and Cynthia Wheel and Barry Mann. Cynthia and Barry were friend, personal friends of Jerry and Carol, but they were all record. All, all three of these couples were recording like hit after hit in the Brill Building. They were like competing with each other, and they would okay. like they had competition, um, like friendly competition between each other. Jeff Barry mm. and Ellie Greenwich, Greenwich recorded "Then He Kissed Me," "Be My Baby," "Baby I Love You," "Do Wah Diddy." Cynthia Neal and Barry Mann. What did they record? Uh, "We Got to Get Out of This Place." You've lost that love and feeling. Kicks by Paul Revere and the Raiders. Just lots and lots of stuff. So I thought the parallels were would be good on the if you could find those. Absolutely. Oh, and Ellie Greenwich recorded her own album of her material that she written for other artists. I think also in 1971, and it's really good. Not to get totally dark. Let's well, get Sean, dark. before you, <laughs> Sean, before you should probably say where we can find that list. Oh yeah, that that's on Spotify. You can uh, get on Spotify and search "I'd Buy That Podcast" all one word to find all of our episode accompanying playlists. Yeah, not to get too dark here at the very end, but isn't he hit me and it felt like a kiss, a Goffin King song? Yes, it is, and she wrote that because I believe it was Little Eva had a physically abusive or she was in a physically abusive relationship with her boyfriend and he came i think it was her don't i don't want to i guess i'm quoting myself but i yeah um someone they were working with came into the studio and was telling them about how my boy how her boyfriend had hit her and then they wrote the song inspired by it yeah yeah i think uh eventually she had regrets about having penned that song but yeah you know and she obviously went through her own her own experiences with that mm-hmm. strikes me as a very resilient artist, though. I mean, I, you know, the fact that she was a woman songwriter in a very male dominated time, she had to be. Absolutely. And they were touching on themes that, you know, like, will you still love me tomorrow is essentially about, I wouldn't say a one night stand, but it's about a girl having sex and like being like okay are you gonna still love me after this like that was not done like you know like it was all still very girls were supposed to be very pure very virginal like there would just be like no even reference to women or girls having sex at all in a song you know what i mean before she wrote that yeah that was a song that i always just kind of knew from out in the world and then i was in a band that covered it and i realized this song's like this is a one night stand Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah. yeah, yeah, that's pretty pretty risque for the time period. Mm-hmm. So she, yeah, she she kind of started that. I'd like to recommend a couple things, resources, or just other interesting things. There's a great movie called Grace of My Heart, starring Ileana Douglas. It's directed by a friend of mine, Allison Anders. It's from 1996, and it's not a 
a literal biopic of Carol King, but it's definitely inspired and the parallels are all, are all there. And it's a fantastic movie, indie movie mm-hmm. from 96, Grace of My yeah, Heart. Allison, Allison Andrews is, is great. She did Mi Vida Loca. Yeah, I, lo- right? I love that movie. <laughs> and I think she did the first segment in Four Rooms. Yes, she did. The, mm-hmm. the one with Madonna and uh, Ioni Sky. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> the witches. <laughs> uh-huh. And she just many, many great films from her. Gas Food Lodging mm-hmm. is another one that I really love. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So yeah, check that out. Uh, and then there's a book that's fantastic that came out in 2008 by a woman named Sheila Weller. And it's called Girls Like Us. And it's about Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and Carly Simon. And it just sort of weaves their stories all in together. And it's, it's really, really good. Awesome. Sound like good things to check out. Yeah. Well, do we have any final thoughts on Carol King or this album? It might have just been that the her activism in the Rocky Mountains drew this parallel in my mind, and I'm just looking for it now. But I feel like there's a little paralleling with John Denver going on. I could see that. Does that? Yeah, I don't know if that tracks or not, but it might have been it's like similar, yeah. simple songwriting, but like well, deeply sophisticated. Yeah, it could have been like the time because like, you know, in the early 70s, there was sort of this return to simplicity and like living off the land, much more so than the 60s. It was just like, let's move to the country, start a commune or like, let's just, you know, appreciate, you know, the earth more than we do. So I could see that kind of, I could definitely see what you're talking about. Bringing it back to... Johnny D. <laughs> yeah, put some Johnny D on that list now, Sean. <laughs> you know, I had thought about doing that, and I will I will absolutely do that. Have y'all done him yet? We've done yeah. one, but you know, I was really kind of thinking we could stand to do another John Denver record in season three. I think you just could. Just because like, there, there's so many cheap ones, and he's <laughs> still so underappreciated. Yeah, we did Farewell Andromeda. That was the name of that one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems so long ago, season one. It does That's seem so long ago winding down on season two here well taylor do you have anything you want to plug before we get out of here yeah um again just list you know my radio show is the thing i stand by the most um that's on nts radio every fourth thursday in the afternoon and that is archived on my website called windmillsofyourmind.org and then i am i'm the working on a TV show right now with Tiffany Anders, who is the music supervisor I've worked with for five years. I'm her music coordinator on that. She's wonderful. And we're working on a show called Reservation Dogs, which is about Native American (laughs) teens on a reservation in Oklahoma. And it's really great. And that will be out by the time that this show airs on FX. So check that out. Lots of fantastic music in that. Is there any Buffy St. Marie by chance? Uh, we're still <laughs> working on some of the, it's not going to be, all, this whole season's not going to be out all at once. It'll be week to week. So we're still working on some of the later episodes in the season, but we're definitely trying. Yeah. We just covered her recently. Oh, cool. I love her. It's great. All right. Well, Taylor, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That was great. Yeah. We are going to end on. The song, You're Something New, which is one of my favorites on here. This is definitely my number one favorite on the record. Yeah, just great energy. So we're going to get out of here on that. Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook.
I'm, I'm Jeremy Harbin. Ruggles. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Taylor Rowley. Just to show.